Lord God, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that it is by the power of your word that the universe was created, by the power of your word that we came into being, by the power of your word that you have redeemed us and called us your own. We ask, Lord, that the same powerful word would be present in and around us this morning, that you would create something new, a new possibility, a new hope, a new direction, a new future for us, that you would give us a new name and a new identity, that you would speak with power and clarity, that you would cut through the fog and the cobwebs and the dimness of our doubts and fears and insecurities, of our hostilities, of our busyness, and let us pause to attend to you, to hear you. Thank you for being a speaking God. In your name we pray. Amen. So beginning at Mark chapter 10, and Jesus replied, uh, verse 29, and Jesus replied, I assure you that anyone who has given up house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or property, for my sake, and for the good news, will receive now, in return, a hundred times over, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, with persecutions. And in the world to come, they will have eternal life. But many who seem to be important now, will be the least important then. And those who are considered least here will be the greatest then. Uh, they were now on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with dread, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him in Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, he told them, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious laws. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, beat him with their whips, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is it, he asked. Uh, in your glorious kingdom, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. They said, one at your right and the other at your left. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you are saying. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of sorrow that I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they said, we are able. And Jesus said, well, you will indeed drink from my cup and be baptized with my baptism. But I have no right to say who will sit on the thrones next to mine. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. And when the ten other disciples discovered what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that in this world are kings, kings are tyrants and officials lorded over the people beneath them, but among you it should be quite different. 
Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. Bible scholar and pastor N.T. Wright tells the following story about uh, an archbishop who was hearing the confessions of three hardened teenagers uh, in his parish. And these three teenagers came in to confess their sins to the archbishop, and they all thought it was a joke. And so they decided to have some fun with them. And the first uh, teen went into the confessional and began to confess his sins and uh, uh, just began to confess to all sorts of sort of egregious and ludicrous crimes and activities that he never committed, was never a part of. I killed off my neighbor. I stole the crown jewel. All kinds of uh, bizarre things. The second teen came into the confessional and also uh, began to confess to all sorts of outlandish and ridiculous and grievous sins that he hadn't committed. It was all a joke to them. And, of course, the archbishop was wise enough to immediately see through the game. And he played along with the, the teenagers. And the first two teenagers, after they had confessed their sins to the archbishop, uh, left the cathedral laughing at the great joke that they had played. But the third teen came in, and the archbishop listened to what the teen said. And this teen also made a mockery of the experience and joked and laughed his way through the confession. And this time, though, before he could leave, the archbishop said, okay, now you have confessed to these sins. Now here's something that I want you to do. What I want you to do is I want you to walk all the way across this building, walk to the front of the sanctuary, and stand there in front of the cross. And I want you to imagine Jesus on that cross. And as you stand there in front of that cross, I want you to look at the cross and say, you did all of this for me, and I don't care that much. And I want you to say it three times. And the teen gulped, walked across the building, walked through the sanctuary to the very front of the altar. He stood and looked up at that cross. And he said in a defiant voice, you did all of this for me, and I don't care that much. Took a breath. Slightly weaker voice, he said, you did all of this for me. I don't care that much. And then he couldn't say it a third time. The archbishop, who was telling the story to N.T. Wright, said, and the reason that I know that this story is true is because I was that third boy. There's something about the cross. There's something about the power of the cross. There's something about the mystery of the cross. There's something about Jesus dying on the cross 
that leaps over all of our theoretical discussions, all of our explanations, all of the possibilities for how we explain it. And instead, the cross reaches out and grabs a hold of us. The cross explains us. The cross grasps us. And somehow when the cross does that, we have a sense that we are being grasped by the love of God. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, writes these words. There have been many famous deaths in world history. We might think of John F. Kennedy or Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but we do not refer to the assassination or the guillotining or the poisoning. Such references would be incomprehensible. The use of the term the crucifixion for the execution of Jesus shows that it still retains a privileged status. When we speak of the crucifixion, even in this secular age, many people will know what is meant. Uh, There is something in the strange death of this man identified as the Son of God that continues to command special attention. This death, this execution, above and beyond all others, continues to have universal reverberations. Of no other death in human history can this be said. The cross of Jesus stands alone in this regard. There were many thousands of crucifixions in Roman times, but only the crucifixion of Jesus is remembered as having any significance at all, let alone world-transforming significance. When we come to the cross, we're not just coming to a challenge for us to understand, but we're coming to a place where God grabs a hold of us, embraces us, holds us, and in the process, transforms the world. Jesus had a keen understanding of the significance of what would happen on that cross. Uh, He describes, though, the significance of his own death only two times. Only on two occasions does he describe the significance of his death. There are other places where he describes the fact of his death. He says that he will die. He talks about uh, several times a prediction of his death. But only on two occasions does he describe the meaning of his death. The meaning as he sees it. The meaning as he understands it. And so this morning, as we look at this passage in Mark's gospel, uh, we want to see what Jesus sees. We want to see what Jesus sees as he's moving towards Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, a trial, and ultimately, a crucifixion. We want to see what Jesus sees and understand what Jesus understands and experience what Jesus experienced. And if we're going to do that, uh, we need to be able to see differently. We need to have different eyes. We need to uh, see, the, uh, see the world through a different lens. And this morning, uh, I'm going to ask us to see through the lens of what uh, biblical scholars sometimes call apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Now, when I say the word apocalyptic, <laughs> maybe it conjures up for you uh, images of a Hollywood blockbuster. Now, how many thought apocalypse now? And you're, you know, in your mind's eye right now, you're seeing explosions and earthquakes and 
skyscrapers are coming down. Uh, you have a vision of a war, a battlefield, something massive, something bloody, something violent, something terrible, uh, apocalyptic. But the word apocalypse actually refers to something far more interesting than any of that. The word itself uh, means to reveal. Uh, the word means to disclose, to unveil something, to draw back a curtain so that something can be seen. Imagine for a moment that you have tickets to go see a play at the Center for the Arts. Uh, you make your way uh, over to the Center for the Arts. You park. Uh, you walk in. Uh, you greet a few friends of yours. You grab a program from the usher, and you make your way uh, to your seat. Excuse me. Pardon me. Excuse me. Pardon me. Excuse me. There's never enough room to get to your seat in that place. But you finally make it to your seat, and you settle in. You look around to see if there's anybody that you know. And eventually, what happens? Your eyes are drawn to the stage. And as you look at the stage, what do you see? Well, the stage is still dark and the curtains are partially drawn, so you can't see a lot. But you can make out there on the stage some uh, a handful of props. You can make out the uh, shadowy outlines of a, of, a, uh, um, of a set, but it has no meaning. It has no significance. You can't see it all that clearly. You can just see dimly in the ambient light of the room. After a few minutes, the Auditorium fills up and the house dims. And then what happens? The stage lights come up. The curtain draws back. That's a moment of apocalypse. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing. It's a putting on display. A moment of apocalypse. But then there's more that comes. Because after the lights come on the stage and you can see everything clearly and the curtains are drawn back and you can see completely, then the, the actors, the storytellers, take their places on that set. And the actors begin to say their lines and go through their motions and tell the story that they want to tell you. And now you're being invited into the story. And suddenly you're seeing something differently. You're seeing not just a set and not just some props, but you're seeing the set and the props uh, through the lens of this new story that you're being invited to see and to experience. Something is being created in front of you, even more than just the physical props, the physical setting. You're seeing the world of the story itself. And as you enter into that story, the stage takes on a new level of meaning and a new level of significance. The end of the performance, what happens? Everybody claps and applauds. The cast comes out for their curtain call. And then the lights on the stage go down. The house lights come back up. And everything is back to exactly where it was 90 minutes ago when the performance started. But now, you look up onto that darkened stage. Now you see a handful of props, and now you see the outlines of a set. And now, though, uh, you see them differently. You'll always see them differently. Now that isn't just a door. That's the door 
where they said their last goodbye. And that isn't just a stairway. That's the stairway where he was killed. And that isn't just a restaurant booth. That's where she heard the news. Everything that you see takes on a different meaning, a different significance. Something new has been revealed. Apocalypse is an unveiling so that something new can be revealed. And when you see that something new, the meaning of everything changes. So Jesus says, <laughs> yeah, it looks like just an empty set. It looks like you've given up everything in order to follow me. It looks like you've lost a lot. But in the bigger story that God is telling, when the lights come on and the curtain draws back, what you're going to see is rather that you've gained everything. What you've actually been doing is losing what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. Uh, it, it may look like that person over there is really powerful and really important and really significant. Uh, you might want to idolize that person, become like that person, and emulate that person. And that person is on a pedestal for you. But Jesus said, mm-mm, uh-uh. When the lights come on and the curtain draws back and you can see differently and you can enter into the bigger story that God is telling, that person is a nothing, a nothing, nothing at all. Instead, the new meaning is the first will be last and the last will be first. We're going to see the world differently. Reality will look different. It's not just shadows and shapes and props and sets, but it all has a different meaning, a new significance. Back in verse 27, he says, this looks impossible. I get that. I get that it looks impossible. And when people see impossible things, they get afraid, they shy away, they back down, they don't pursue it. When it looks impossible, people give up. But Jesus says, I want you to see something different. I want you to look at this through a different lens because what is impossible for you is possible for God. It's a different way of seeing. This morning, we come to the cross, and as we're grabbed by the power of the cross, the uniqueness of the cross. I want us to see something differently. I want us to be reminded of the way that Jesus looks at his reality from a different perspective through the lens of this larger story. And notice how Mark tells the story. He says that Jesus is pressing on toward Jerusalem. This is actually the third time that Jesus, in the very short, succinct gospel of Mark, is about to uh, describe the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. Uh, the disciples and the crowds have heard that message. They don't know what it will all mean, but they're busy trying to avoid it. They know that if they go to Jerusalem, there's going to be trouble. And yet Jesus is unflinching. Uh, Jesus never wavers. And the disciples and the crowds are starting to get nervous. As they get closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem, their anxiety is going higher and higher and higher. They're frightened. 
but Jesus is on a mission. What I want us to see here is that Jesus' death isn't a passive experience. It's not as if Jesus was suddenly surprised. It wasn't as if Jesus' life was taken from him against his will. No, what we see here is Jesus is storming the hill. He's taking the enemy by force. Back in the third chapter of Mark, Jesus is trying to explain the significance of his life and his ministry. And the religious powers come and say, uh, you're a servant of Satan, you're demonic, you're evil, you're, you're a problem. And Jesus begins to explain the significance of his ministry, the work that he will do in these terms. He says, listen, it's in Mark uh, chapter 3.27, no one can enter into a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. And that little parable is in all three of the first three Gospels. Jesus says, the purpose of my life, the thing that I'm doing is I am storming into the strong man's house. I'm tying him up. I'm restraining him. And I'm plundering his house. I'm taking back what was always rightfully mine. The disciples know that this confrontation with the powers of their day is about to happen. And they are afraid. They're terrified. And then listen to how Jesus describes the fight that's about to happen. He says that, He will be betrayed and handed over to the priests, religious leaders. Then ultimately, he will be handed over, he says, to the Romans. Jesus is describing uh, the two most present, controlling, influential powers in the world from the perspective of the disciples. The church and the state. The massive influence massive power, massive wealth that is arrayed against Jesus. These are the powers that Jesus says will destroy him. And it will look like absolute defeat. In fact, that's one of the reasons Jesus was so clear about this. It's one of the reasons that many doubted and continue to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, The Jewish people had a picture of a Messiah who was a military hero, who would take on the powers of the day, who would cleanse the temple and defeat the Romans. The Messiah would do all of that in an effort to restore Israel to its former uh, glory. What they had no room for was a Messiah who would go and be handed over. They had no room for a Messiah who would be captured. They had no room for a Messiah who would be defeated. But Jesus says, this is precisely what will happen. I'm going to do battle. I'm going to die. And then he says, but in three days, I will rise again. And I will be victorious. I will win. I also want you to notice what he doesn't say about the significance of his death. In this text, in this place, the New Testament Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem because you have all sinned. He doesn't say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem because you have lied and cheated and stolen. 
and you've yelled at people when you shouldn't have, and you, you, you've held back your tithe. He, he doesn't say, you've all sinned, and you've sinned so much that I have to go and die in order to forgive you. All of that is true. But what Jesus is saying is so much more, so much more. What he says is that he is going to Jerusalem to defeat the very powers that are trying to defeat him. In other words, the curtain is coming back and the lights are coming on and a bigger story is being revealed and we're being invited in. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross. Defeating, disarming the powers and the authorities. Triumphing over them on the cross. In other words, Paul is saying the cross is a place of triumph. It's a word that brings us into the space of a military victory. And then later, Paul writes in Ephesians, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers. So here's the larger picture. Here's the apocalyptic lens. In the Bible, sin is both an individual act and an oppressive power, like a foreign invader. So the individual sins, little s, Little s, plural word. The individual sins and those individual little case s sins uh, can be forgiven. And last week we talked about the fact that that forgiveness is costly. It's always costly to forgive. It's sacrificial to forgive. The cross is a place of atonement for those sins. Uh, It's a place where guilt is set aside. Guilt is covered up. Sins are forgiven and removed. And it's sacrificial. And we've also seen that when an individual sins, little s, plural word, when an individual sins, those individuals can be restored to relationship. You see, it isn't just forgiven for sins, but now it's also restored to relationship. And we looked at how the cross takes place within a shame culture. And and real justice is not just forgiveness or not just penalty, but real justice is restoration of relationship. And so on the cross... Jesus says, listen, I'm coming into your shame. And you get a glimpse of that in Jesus' words here in Mark's Gospel. He doesn't say, I'm going to suffer horrendous physical torture. What he he says is, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. And then I'm going to die. The mocking and the spitting is entering into a place of shame. Jesus says, I see you in your shame. I know your shame. I know how desperately you want to hide and and how desperately you you hope that your your secret sins and, and, and brokenness will never be seen. I see you in that. And I'm coming right into it with you. And I'm going to spread my arms open. And I'm going to embrace you here. I'm going to embrace you in the midst of your shame. I'm going to heal the relationship that you're trying to hide from. And I'm going to love you until you trust me. All of that is happening on the cross. Sin is being atoned and forgiven. Shame is being overcome. 
And, 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 Jesus says, sin isn't just an individual act. It isn't just a lowercase. It isn't just the symptom. It's also the disease. It's also a power. It's a capital P power. And in fact, the Bible says that the whole cosmos is captive to this foreign power. Now what's true is that this power, this capital P power, this presence, can express itself in this world through the systems and structures that we have to contend with. The religious and political systems and structures of Jesus' day conspired against him. But behind the scenes, when the curtain is drawn open and the stage lights come on and the story is told, what we learn is that behind the scenes, in the spiritual realm, a place that you don't normally see, there are powers and forces at work against God and against God's people and against God's purposes. And in the face of those powers, forgiveness isn't enough. Repentance doesn't get it done. Sacrifices fall short. What is needed, what is needed is a greater power. A power that can bind the strong man and take back what was previously pillaged. The cross isn't just about forgiveness because sin isn't just a lowercase symptom. It's also a capital D disease. It's also about defeating the powers and rectifying the damage that they have done. If you've ever been in a position to speak with family members who are survivors of violence, you've heard this distinction. I remember sitting with a family where a wife, a mother, left behind a young husband and children after being murdered. I remember sitting with another family whose son was killed by a drunk driver, a man who had driven drunk on two previous occasions. In both cases, both cases, there's atonement. Both cases, there's forgiveness. Forgiveness can happen. It's costly. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It's costly. But they would also say, in forgiving the person who took our loved one away from us, in forgiving that person, it doesn't make anything right. Still still have a gaping hole. I still live with the loss. Our world is still mired in violence under this belief that violence is a solution to something. Our world is still stuck in addiction and all of the reasons that people turn to substances to escape. None of that is made right by forgiveness. Something else is needed here. And the cross, viewed apocalyptically from God's side of the story, the cross is the more. It's the place where those powers are defeated. And that loss 
is turned around. I talked to my friends in New York City, friends who were in the city when the towers came down, friends who lost friends in those towers. Through an incredible act of sacrificial love, they have forgiven the men who piloted those jets. They've forgiven for their own sanity and their own wholeness. They needed to do that. But the powers aren't defeated by forgiveness. The powers that drive evil and hatred, the powers that infect religions and poisons nations, those powers are bound and defeated friends, on the cross. Sin is not just an individual act. It is also a master. It is a power. Paul says that apart from Jesus, you are slaves to sin. You hear the language of power, enslavement. The disciples were slaves of the Roman Empire. And we are slaves to sin. But that slavery isn't just passive. If you hear the story of the powers and the cosmic victory of Jesus over the powers, and you say, oh, well then, I'm off the hook. I'm not responsible. I'm just a captive here. Jesus comes and says, not so fast. Not so fast. Uh, not only are you captive to sin, but you are also a willing and active participant in it. Even the disciples. Even the disciples, the, the men that Jesus has gathered around himself and said, you are the best hope for the world. You are the ones that I will pour myself into. Even them, even the disciples, people who wrote pages of the Bible, are caught by the powers and willing and eager participants in it. So what happens? They demonstrate their complicity in the slavery. Everyone, everyone contributes to the power of sin. It's like the mass of each individual planet contributing to and being governed by the power of gravity. Disciples themselves are not only captives to sin, but they perpetuate it. And in this story, Jesus is going to suffer, be mocked, be spit on, and killed. And Mark says the next thing out of their mouths are, yeah, but which one of us is most powerful? Who gets the goods? Who gets the authority? Really, Jesus, who do you like best? That's the power speaking. That's the power at work. They're contributing to the powers. No one is immune. You contribute to the powers. And therefore, nobody can set you free except for one who is not a captive. It's not the captive who will set you free. It is somebody who has to come from outside of your captivity. And that's precisely what Jesus says. He says, 
this fascinating little phrase that may be the most important three words in the whole story. He says, I came here. I came here. I came here from somewhere else. I came here from a place that is not captive to the powers. I have snuck in the back door of the strong man's house. I came here to set you free. He says, I am going to give my life as a ransom for many. When Jesus uses the word ransom there, every single one of his disciples and everybody in the crowd and everybody who grew up listening to the Hebrews tell their stories over dinner and around the campfire, when he used the word ransom, everybody would have said Exodus. Ah, Exodus. Because God says, when I set my people free from captivity in Egypt, that was a ransom. I was ransoming my people from captivity. Jesus says, I am here to set you free from your captivity to the power. And I'll give my life in order to do it. The powers throw their worst at Jesus. Mock trials. Crowd mentality. Perverted justice. Bloodlust. They throw their worst at Jesus. And like a hurricane that blows itself out against a shelter, or like an invading army that is defeated and disarmed, or like a virus that invades the body but is defeated by the sacrificial white blood cells, the powers are done in. And Jesus rises from the dead. It's the ultimate victory the ultimate trump card in the power's hand is taken off the table. The wages of sin are canceled. And what that means is, with the defeat of the powers, we are set free to live in such a way that our lives point every day to the possibility of new freedom. What was impossible for people is possible for God. So how do we point to it? How do we point to this new possibility for freedom? How do we take this new insight, this new way of seeing, this new meaning, this new perspective where we say, that is not just a piece of wood. It isn't just a decorative prop. What we see here every single week is a battlefield. Every time we come into this room, we're sitting in the presence of a cosmic victory. How do we take that and point to it? And Jesus says to his disciples, among you, it must be different. In fact, he says, among you, it must be very different. So when you see the powers at work, Uh, What you see is an abuse of authority. You see rulers who lord it over others. Uh, When you see the powers at work, uh, you see people who are enslaved and ensnared and beaten down. But you have to be different than that. Question for you, question for me, question for us is, are you living differently? In light of the larger story that God is telling. Uh, When we give up power, 
when we refuse selfish ambition, when we live distinctively as people who are willing to give up the things that the rest of our culture says are really important and may even be in and of themselves good things, when we say mom and dad and kids and family and sports and music and all of these good things are not the ultimate thing. School is not the ultimate thing. Wealth is not the ultimate thing. They're not bad. They're not evil in and of themselves. But, but, when they become the ultimate thing, when they become the first thing, that's the powers. That's the powers at work. When we don't live in fear of other people or reject people who frighten us, we're living in ways when we do that that point to the cross. It's like saying to somebody, I saw a play at the Center for the Arts last weekend, and I want you to come with me. I want to go back again. And you bring your friend, and you sit down in the same place, and now you see the stage in its pre-performance state, and you know the story, and you understand the significance, and you see the door, and you see the stairs, and you see the booth. You know the story, and you're pointing your friend to the story. Your life is pointing to a story. Your life is pointing everybody to a story. Your life is pointing to the story of Jesus' victory. Or is pointing to the story of the power's power. When we divide and defeat and accumulate, when we trust governments or institutions to save us, when we chase after power and influence and being right and winning at all costs and being safe and being comfortable, when we let fear govern our lives and the power of the cross is dimmed in our lives and we point people away from God's victory. Among you, it must be different. Among you, it must be very different. Would you pray with me, please?